0: Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. You remember where we are in this Advent series of Luke chapter 1. Last week we met Mary. And the angel Gabriel had been sent from God to this young virgin to tell her she would have a son. Jesus, the Son of God. Who would reign, the angel said, over the house of Jacob forever. It's the Messiah. How will this be? Mary asked. Since I am a virgin. And Gabriel answered in these immortal yet mysterious words that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, that the power of the Most High would overshadow her, that Mary's conception would be divine. And then verse 36 of last week's text and behold the angel said to Mary your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God and Mary believes But if you were Mary in that moment, what would you do? Well, I'm thinking you'd get going to see Elizabeth, which in verse 39 is exactly what happens. In those days, Luke writes, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, we don't know what town. We don't know where exactly this is, but it would have been 80 or 100 or so miles for Mary to travel to the region that Luke's describing here, which in those days would have meant three or four days for Mary to get there. It seems that Mary needs to go to spend time with Elizabeth, and it seems that she would intend to stay for a while. She makes this day, few days long journey and verse 40 says she entered the house of Zechariah who still can't say anything and probably can't hear anything either. And with Zechariah standing there, Mary greets Elizabeth. There's no indication that Mary spelled anything out in that greeting, all oh, that's been stirring in her hearts these last few days. In fact, Luke writes it in a way that we get the sense that that Mary arrives and she can't text Elizabeth in advance, right, to tell her what's going on. And she gives just the word of greeting. And no sooner had she finished that word of greeting than it was John who responded. That that would be John, the six-month-old baby in his mother Elizabeth's womb, John. He responded before Elizabeth could respond, who doesn't even know yet what Mary is bringing. Verse 41, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, Luke writes, the baby leaped in her womb. And so John the Baptist has begun already his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit pointing to the one who is to come. Seriously, Chapter 1, verse 15, which Roger preached two weeks ago. You remember Gabriel speaking to Zechariah about his soon-to-be-conceived son, John? What did Gabriel say in verse 15? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. But it wasn't just John filled with the Spirit, was it? Luke writes, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, the end of verse 41. John's filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 42, and she exclaimed with the loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she, that's you, Mary, blessed are you, Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And I just want to make the simple observation that given the way Luke's written this down, I don't think Mary had even told Elizabeth about any of that yet. Right? You see? Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit. She is therefore able to interpret the significance of John's movement like a prophetess. She's filled with the Spirit and declares the divine significance of her baby son's leaping. It was for joy. Right? Think about that. The end of verse 44, it says it The baby in my womb leaped for joy, Mary. Because John knew. I mean, what else can it mean? It was a response with emotion, if you believe the words. So John knew, and Elizabeth knew, both by the Holy Spirit. They knew who it was visiting them. It was Mary, yes, but it was not just Mary. It was the child as well all of perhaps three or four days old inside the womb of Mary. For this is, as Elizabeth puts it, the mother of my Lord, the Messiah. The response is joy. And parenthetically, do you remember or have you ever thought about what this same John would say some 30 years later, when he compares his prophetic joy in announcing Christ, he compares that with that of a friend of the groom at a wedding. This is John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 29. It's John the Baptist, the same one who's six months in the womb at our passage, 30 years later, who says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says, and it is now complete. Isn't that wonderful? You see, it was joy. It was joy at the coming of the bridegroom. And so John left. And Elizabeth understood what it meant. That they're now in some small Judean town that we don't even know the location of where these two mothers and the plan of God is unfolding. And one of these two mothers is young and virginal, and one is old and barren, or formerly barren relatives in the providence of God, bearing children who would change the course of all human history. And there they would be, able to share their hearts with one another, and Mary, we know from the last verse, verse 56 of our passage, would stay for three months. This is where she wanted to be, because Elizabeth understood what was going on Who else would have? And without being able to say exactly why, I find it moving that these two women had this time together. I don't know if you've ever reflected on this, but here are these two obscure, humble women of faith who get three months together Beautifully connected now in the plan and purposes of God, given the gift of this time together for mutual encouragement, for fellowship, for support, how they would need that. How strengthening it must have been for Elizabeth to understand what was happening to Mary in light of her own pregnancy and what she knew from her husband to have been said in the temple. How encouraging it would have been then for Mary to hear words like Elizabeth said in verse 45 of our passage. You see them there, verse 45. Blessed is she, blessed are you, Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What stunning faith Mary had, but what encouragement to continue in that faith Elizabeth gives and how important that that faith would be nurtured in the presence of Elizabeth in this time. And in fact, it's in that context, it's in response to that benediction of verse 45 that Elizabeth speaks to her just after greeting one another in her home, that Mary then speaks, or maybe sings, her sublime magnificat, beginning in verse 46. Now clearly Mary's heart had been prepared for this. She'd had a few days in the journey. That's why I point out the geographical details. She'd had a few days to begin to reflect and to think and to put together as best she could an understanding of what was happening of what was happening to her, yes, but what was happening in the purposes of God. So that now at the encouragement of Elizabeth's benediction, having come and received this great word of encouragement, there comes forth, there pours forth from Mary this majestic song, this great first song of the incarnation. There's a lot of singing in Luke chapters 1 and 2 and 3 from Mary, from the angels, from Simeon. But this first song is perhaps the great one. The Magnificat. Simply the name that reflects the Latin translation of the Greek term that's used, the verb is megaluno, the the word that Mary uses in her opening. My soul magnifies the Lord, you hear it. The verb meaning to make great, to praise, to extol, to enlarge the Lord. And as much as I want to look at some of the content of what's in the Magnificat, and we will in a moment, I want you first to see that Mary engages in this with her whole being. Look there at verse 46, the beginning of the Magnificat, and notice the statements that are in parallel. This is a Hebrew Hebrew (laughs) psalm that Mary sings, that she's composed. And it uses parallelism just like most psalms do in Semitic language tradition. And so there's two parallel statements there in verse 46, and they help us understand what... What they mean. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So, what does it mean to magnify the Lord? It means to rejoice. To rejoice in God my Savior. This psalm of Mary is not some kind of theoretical, theological articulation. It has much theology and biblical depth to it. But it is, first and foremost, a deep-seated, inner-person-rooted response of praise to the Lord. It's a strong song of faith. And it's right in the core of who Mary is. This language, very biblical language, of the soul and the spirit don't need to make some distinction between them it's simply referring to the entire inner self the the i who mary is and for the rest of our time this morning we'll consider some of the content of this psalm but i'm trying to keep it in context and paint it emotionally a bit because mary's now joined elizabeth who's just blessed her with these words of profound encouragement and it's in that moment of having two or three days to reflect on this that mary's ready with her song. And this is her. This is this is deeply and truly her. Praising the Lord. Singing her faith. Probing the scriptures. And so in reflecting on this passage this week, I've been quite caught up simply with the example that Mary sets. And I'm left with this question. Does my own soul know how to magnify the Lord like this? Does my own spirit know how to rejoice in God my Savior like this? How thoughtful am I about that? Because this is a very serious, very thoughtful, very structured, sublime psalm that Mary offers. It's completely steeped in the scriptures. And I can't even begin to do justice to that this morning. There are specific parallels most explicitly to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you've ever read that, if you haven't, go read it this week. 1 Samuel chapter 2, the song of Hannah. But then in every line of Mary's Magnificat, there is a counterpart in, or at least an allusion to, some place in the Old Testament. In other words, you simply can note from that that Mary, in her deep-seated response of praise and magnification of the Lord, knew her Bible. She drew from it to praise and magnify the Lord. Not that she would have had a copy of the scriptures to read as if she were even able to read, which is unlikely, but she would have worshipped. She would have heard, read, she would have known by heart the principal songs of Hannah and David and Deborah and others from the Old Testament scriptures. And I well imagine in that three or four day journey to Elizabeth, what was Mary doing but meditating on those? Setting her heart to the Word word of God to, to probe the depth of understanding of what it is that the Lord is doing as she prepares herself to meet Elizabeth. And so I ask myself this week, do I think biblically, like Mary does? Do the thoughts and the words of Scripture so fill my mind and heart and mouth in response to the Lord that were I to compose a hymn of praise, what could it be but the outflowing of the Word of God? Or even more subtly, do I find that my soul and spirit moves to glorify the Lord at all in my days for what the Lord has done for me. As we'll see, we can apply Mary's Magnificat in a moment. Literally, this language is to make great or to enlarge the Lord. Am I enlarging the Lord in my soul? Are you, brothers and sisters, are we thinking thoughts that move us to glorify the Lord? Is there ever a moment where you can say that your whole being is engaged in this at any time? It's an important question. It's not just a theoretical question. Jesus says in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, the words of Jesus, the hour is coming, he says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Do you hear that? In spirit, my spirit rejoices, Mary says, in spirit and truth. For the Father, Jesus says, is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And I hold out to you the Magnificat of Mary as one of the most profoundly beautiful examples of what it is Jesus describes. God seeks people whose spirits are engaged in worship, and so I'll leave you to think of that in your own life. But I will say this, that I know from my own experience as I reflected on this, that this kind of worship is far more likely to happen in the context of and in response to the corporate gathering of God's people. When the gathered body of Christ is together, just as Mary would go to be with Elizabeth for mutual encouragement, so we come together to listen to the Lord in his word to pray together, to encourage one another, to worship together. I pray you find yourself drawn to be here, that your soul and your spirit may be so moved to enlarge the Lord and rejoice in spirit and truth. Now, it's for the time that remains for me this morning, then, to consider briefly the content of Mary's great psalm of praise. And I've said that there are Old Testament allusions in every line of the Magnificat and I'm not going to try to unpack all of that. I think in some future year of my ministry life, we'll just spend Advent in the Magnificat because you could do it and still have things left to say. What I want to do now is make just a few observations To help us see what Mary does conceptually in her psalm. Because we need to learn from her in terms of a pattern. This is how she magnifies the Lord, which is what we all need to be doing. And there are two basic parts to it. And this is not just me seeing this. Lots of people see this. There's not a lot unique about what I'm telling you here this morning. Mary magnifies the Lord in her psalm of praise, firstly, for what the Lord has done for her individually. And then Mary magnifies the Lord, secondly, for what the Lord will do for his people corporately. Mary magnifies the Lord for what he has done for her individually, and then from there she transitions to magnify the Lord for what he will do for his people corporately. So there's the individual level, and there's the corporate level. And you see how, just by observation, the Magnificat shifts in verse 50. So scan the text, and you see that verses 46 to 49 have all kinds of first-person singular pronouns, right? There's lots of me and my And Mary's talking about her individual experience in verses 46 to 49. But then, beginning in verse 50, note how the language shifts. Note how then it becomes the third person plural. Words like they, and their, and those, in what Mary is describing. As she talks about the corporate people of God, And the fundamental observation I want to make is this, that Mary sees her own life of faith as being part of the corporate life of God's people. She situates her magnification of the Lord within that kind of a context. In other words, Mary can locate her own experience of the Lord within the larger framework of the promises of the Lord for his people that go all the way back to Abraham. Which is exactly, I'm suggesting to you, what we all need to do as we live our lives of faith to locate our individual lives of faith with the Lord within the context of all that the Lord is doing in His corporate purposes for His people. So, verses 46 to 49 focus on the individual level. And Mary comes right out front here in verse 48 saying why it is that her soul magnifies the Lord. Why it is that her spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For, she writes... Sings, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, meaning her. And if you were to study this language of the Magnificat in depth, then right away you would see that this is a direct connection to Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, because the term that Mary uses for humble estate there is the same term that's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of 1 Samuel 1, verse 11. O Lord of hosts, Hannah sings in 1 Samuel 1. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the humble estate of your servant, or in the Hebrew translation in the ESV, look on the affliction of your servant, same term, and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Now, look at Hannah's barren, and Mary's not barren. I know that. I know that this is not a direct parallel situation. Mary's not saying she has the same affliction as Hannah. That's not the point. The point is that Mary responds in biblical terms. In her own situation, in a way that connects her into the faithful example of people in the past, so that Mary can employ the same term this time to quite naturally refer to her own low social position. So that Mary is able to praise God, her Savior, because He looked upon her low social state and yet in love let her bear the Messiah. That God took note of her and came to her in her humble estate. And just as Mary can take the example of Hannah, so I am suggesting to you that we can take the example of Mary and see something true here for all of us. That for God to meet us as well in our experience of helplessness, or weakness. Remembering words like Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It is the same Lord who met Mary, who had met Hannah, who's willing to meet us in our humble estate. Before him. For behold, Mary continues in verse 48 From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And indeed, great is Mary's blessing. And it's certainly true that these words have a unique application for Mary. That she alone would bear the Son of God and her example of faith would inspire generation upon generation of followers of Jesus. But there's a degree to which we also when the Lord has been at work in our own lives we can say something similar to this. Can't we? Because if we're Christians if indeed the Mighty One has done great things for us through his Son, by the Spirit, then we too will be called blessed, the Bible says, by the Lord himself. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, Jesus tells us, then the King will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so Mary celebrated and magnified the Lord for what he had done in her own individual life. And certainly there's a degree of uniqueness to Mary's experience that will be none of ours. And yet I submit to you that Mary still stands as an example for us. That we can do the same, magnifying the Lord for all that he has done for us in Christ meeting us in our humble estate, blessing us eternally. And then having spoken of her experience individually as she did, Mary then in verses 50 to 55 considers how her own experience is an example of the corporate experience of God's people. And here's that move from the individual experience to the Recognition of God's work in the corporate salvation of His people. Mary ends the section of her own experience by saying, and holy is His name. Literally, set apart. Unique in power. Unique in the universe. Holy is the Lord. How is that holiness expressed? What has Mary learned of who the Lord is? It's there in verse 50, where Mary gives this thesis statement, if you will, for the rest of her psalm Holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Brothers and sisters, How does God show his holiness? How does God reveal who he is? How does God set himself apart? By being merciful. I mean, this is Christmas after all. And for those of you who are into the biblical languages a little bit, or care about that, or even if you don't think you do, here's a point you should try to grasp this Greek word for mercy, when Mary says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, the Greek word is eleos. That is everywhere that I can find in the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It is the way they translate the Hebrew word chesed, faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. You see, the concepts are connected. This is Mary's link. It's the character of God. She sees her own life within that central reality of the character of God being worked out individually for her as it will be for all members of His covenant. And His mercy and His faithfulness is for those who fear Him, she says, from generation to generation Mary speaking biblically, theologically, covenantally, so that now whereas in verses 46 to 49 we considered Mary's own experience in the past of what the Lord has done for her, now we move ahead from verse 50 where Mary speaks here of the future expectation of the faithful and the judgment of the Lord against the unfaithful. In every way, Mary says, the faithful will experience the mercy of God. The covenant faithfulness of the Lord. His loyal, gracious, faithful love. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Makes us ask, what if we don't fear Him? You see, how you know where to find yourself in the verses that follow here in verses 51 to 53 depends very much on how you fit into verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Then determines how you fit into the rest of the Magnificat. So verse 51 and following. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Notice how Mary speaks here in what is translated for us in English as the past tense. Yet she's speaking of a future when these reversals she knows will be accomplished in full because of the outworking of the covenant of the Lord through the very son that she bears. This is what scholars call the prophetic past tense, the prophetic past tense which isn't really technically a past tense at all in Greek. We have to assign it a tense in English in this way. But this is Mary viewing the future work of the Lord as something so certain, so certain that it can be expressed as an accomplished fact. Because this is the number one interpretive challenge of the Magnificat. While there are examples of everything Mary is saying here, of the Lord scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty, sending the rich empty away. You and I all know from a simple glance around the world today that this is not yet fully the reality we know. This is Mary looking ahead in light of her own son, in light of the promises she knows to be the covenant promises of the Lord. This is the future reign of the Messiah that Mary prescribes. It will be God's new world order brought about by her own son and Mary saying that those on the Lord's side can look for this reversal. That the arrogant and conceited who see no need for God or for treating fellow humans with compassion, they will be scattered, Mary says that the injustice of these mighty rulers or ruling classes, they will be brought down, Mary says. And those who in their wealth may eat well, yet stand independently from God, they will be sent away, Mary says. This is her profound vision of the kingdom of God. In short... From the prophetess Mary, if I may put it that way, this is a reminder that there is a great eschatological reversal to come. All will not be as it is now. For his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And finally then, brothers and sisters, it will all be so ultimately because God is faithful to his promises, which is why Mary goes in verse 54 and 55 to these words. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What will this child of Mary bring about? you ever thought about Mary catching a glimpse of what her own son would accomplish ultimately in terms of the covenant? It's nothing less than the fulfillment of all that has been promised to God's faithful people from the days of Abraham on. From Genesis 12, verse 3, in which the Lord promised to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and all the way through. In other words, from Mary's perspective, God's covenant is a done deal, brothers and sisters. You and I know that as Christians we are the spiritual seed of Abraham through faith, that his covenant mercy extends to us forever and ever. Standing here with Elizabeth... Rejoicing in the work that the Lord has been doing in their lives. This is how Mary magnifies the Lord. First, for all that he has done for her individually. But then secondly, for all he will do for his true people forever. Mary's hymn is a declaration of faith. In the end, it's a confident statement that God will vindicate the faithful in remembrance of his covenant promises to Abraham and that this includes Mary and this includes you. So that there remains only this one thing for us to evaluate and is the reason why I dwelt on it earlier in the sermon. To ask whether we, like Mary, magnify and rejoice in the Lord. For if we do, then ours is the blessing of Mary's Magnificat. For His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.